Well, we have spent several weeks now in Romans chapter 9, and one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture that exalts the freedom of God's will in divine election. Now, we dove deep into understanding some of the statements there, such as when Paul says of God, uh, or quotes God, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion, or Paul's Conclusion drawn from that, so then it or salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That all these things are matters of God's will, and He has a freedom and a right to do these things, is very clear from Paul's teaching. He is our creator, He has every right to create each of us for whatever purpose He wants. He could have created every one of us for the purpose of destruction had he wanted to, and he would have been completely justified. But of course he didn't. He created some, Paul tells us, for the purposes of mercy, for the purposes of redemption, for the purposes of glory. And as Paul is is teaching this, he isn't simply making these statements of his own accord. He is demonstrating them with Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. From Abraham's life, from Isaac's life, from Moses' life, from Pharaoh's life. Because the truths that Paul is sharing in Romans chapter 9 are literally woven throughout all of Scripture. They are not difficult to demonstrate, not difficult at all. But what is difficult, as we began uh, speaking in the last couple weeks, what is difficult is not reading these things, but understanding them. It's difficult because people get stuck on several questions when they contemplate what the Bible has to say about God's sovereign election. It's difficult because despite the fact that God says that there is absolutely no basis in our personal virtue or our personal value, we still are driven for whatever reason to ask why. Why? What is the rationale behind God's choice of one and not the other? We still want to ask, what is it that makes God differentiate? What is it that causes Him to fashion some people one way and other people another way? What is it that causes Him to create people that He knows are bound for destruction and fashion some people knowing that He will redeem them for glory? What is it that makes one differ from another? And of course, the answer is nothing. That's what Paul says, nothing. Nothing in man, at least. Whatever it is, is bound up in the mind and the purposes of God. That answer is difficult for some people because they get stuck on the question of why. But some people also get stuck on the question of so what? If it's true that God has created all people and predetermined their eternal destiny, what does it mean for our individual choices? What does it mean for our individual efforts in things such as evangelism, in things such as prayer? If God is sovereign over all things and He has created us with all of these things already fixed in His mind, does anything really matter anymore? And by the way, as we said, 
Even for those people who would want to downplay the sovereignty of God and play up his simple knowledge of future choices that others make, they're still forced to admit that the future is fixed already in God's mind. And so we're asked, or we're forced to ask, what difference does it make then? The future's already fixed. What difference does it make if we pray? What difference does it make if we evangelize? Does it make any difference? Well, the answer is yes. It absolutely does. It does make a difference because while God has ordained and predestined certain people for glory and eternal salvation, He doesn't simply visit each of them with a personal call or invitation. We're never given the impression that God has fatalistically fixed every interaction that we have with people. God has chosen not to work, if you will, directly in people's lives, but indirectly, or we might say He's chosen to work instrumentally through instruments, bringing about His sovereign and eternal purposes. God has chosen to bring about His will, not by simply and suddenly causing people to autonomously believe, but He has chosen to bring about His will through the means of instruments, the instrumentality of men and women. He's chosen people like you and people like me through your prayers, through your life, through your words. He's chosen you as tools through which he works in bringing about salvation. A billionaire might decide to make a gift of a million dollars to some individual and he knows there are a million ways that he could deliver that money. He could choose any number of people. He could go and deliver the money himself. But if he grants you the opportunity to deliver the check to that person, then although you're not the giver, you have the tremendous joy of participating in that gift in your own way, of being the one who delivers the joyous news, who shares in the moment of the reaction of the person who receives it, And the honor of being entrusted with this task by the billionaire, and in some cases, even some reward for being someone who faithfully does the job. This is the way in which God's chosen to work. He has a precious gift, and He's delivering it to those that He's chosen, that He's called out, but He doesn't deliver it Himself directly. In his wisdom, he has chosen to deliver the mercy of salvation, the grace of redemption. He has chosen to deliver all of that through the proclamation of his word. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This was God's pleasure. This was His design. This was His idea whenever He crafted His plan of redemption that people would access it or people would respond to it, not by some epiphany in and of themselves, but they would respond to it by means of the preaching of the Word of God. So that James can say that it is by the Word that we are born again. 
Or as the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing down to the very thoughts and intents of our heart. He has given us this powerful tool that is not to be neglected, not to be diminished, but is to be exalted and is to be taken and used for His glory. He's chosen to entrust it to us, the lips of men and women, and He's given you and me the invitation to be those people. So I thought that after spending several sustained weeks thinking about the issue of God's sovereignty and our salvation, it might be helpful if we pulled back for a moment and spent a week or two thinking about our responsibility in evangelism. Or really, not just evangelism, we might say prayer in evangelism. Because while God is working sovereignly in people's lives, he has chosen to do so not only through the instrument of our lips, but also through the instrument of our prayers. So within the sovereignty of God, prayer and proclamation give us an opportunity to join God's program, to experience the unique joys of delivering this good news, and even to earn eternal rewards along the way. And to help us think about those things, there are so many places we could go, but I want to draw your attention this morning to Colossians. The book of Colossians, and in chapter 4, Paul's instruction to the church there, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, where he writes uh, here about the call to prayer and proclamation. This is the same man who wrote Romans 9, the same man who exalts the sovereignty of God, who understands his role in election, who understands the predetermination and everything that God has given us by way of eternity, and yet he still understands this dynamic of our opportunity in prayer and proclamation of the word. This is what he says in verse 2 of Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am, a pri- I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you might know how you ought to answer each person. There are a couple of oughts in here. Paul wants prayer so that he can speak the word as he ought, he says in verse 4. And down in verse 6, he wants us to understand how we ought to speak. In other words, this theology, this understanding of the sovereignty of God doesn't remove certain responsibilities that you and I have toward an unbelieving world. It doesn't remove the need within the the, the natural discourse of life. It doesn't remove the need for us to behave in certain ways which can positively and negatively impact the gospel that we are entrusted with. 
can have a real impact on whether or not you and I have the joy and the privilege of being one of the instruments through which God has chosen to speak. This passage gives to us then, I think, four characteristics of the believer that God uses for his divine purposes or four basic principles of evangelism, you could even say, but four ways that we participate in God's program as he is sovereignly working through us in leading others to himself. It is not to be viewed as some fatalism. God gives us responsibility. And there are certain things we ought to do and certain things we ought not to do. The first one that Paul gives to us in verse 2 is this. that You and I ought to be persistent in prayer. We ought to be persistent in prayer. That's what he says. He issues this brief command uh, to continue steadfastly in prayer. And he uses the word here used several times in the New Testament in reference to prayer. And I believe there's this interesting connection between this kind of uh, devotion and persistence and unceasing prayer that Paul's calling for here and the work of evangelism. I mean, you could just open up the book of Acts and see a, a pattern that was being set repeatedly in the early church, Acts 1.14, between the days of Christ's ascension and the days of Pentecost, the believers, we're told, were continuing in their devotion to prayer. These times of devoted prayers, which we know then were followed up by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, the salvation of 3,000 souls. And you're saying, well, wait, I mean, God already had that ball rolling. God already had that thing moving. Yeah, he did. He absolutely had promised and prophesied that it would happen. And yet, he was using the devoted prayers of the saints to bring it about. Their reward is full. Acts 2.42, immediately following the day of Pentecost, Scripture records that those thousands of new believers were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And he goes on to record a few verses later, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 6.4, the apostles recognize that there's a priority in their lives as spiritual leaders to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they call alongside of themselves devoted helpers, workers who would free them up for this task of prayer and the ministry of the word. And so as they devote themselves, that's what it says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And once again, the scripture records after that event, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And so you see this interesting dynamic playing out in the book of Acts of a group of people who devote themselves to prayer and the subsequent effect that people were being saved. And I'm not standing here saying that if you simply devote yourself 
uh, properly to prayer that God is going to automatically allow you to see thousands of people saved. I understand that the book of Acts offered unique times and unique circumstances, but I think that it is giving us some insight, especially when combined with what Paul says in the book of Colossians about this connection between prayer, devoted prayer, and how God chooses to use such means for the sake of evangelism. I think there are times when God has poured out his saving knowledge on people apart from such things. He certainly has used prayerless times and even bad preaching, in some cases false teaching has been spouted from some pulpits and yet God in his mercy still saves some. So we're not saying that God confines himself necessarily to these things, but what we're saying is that God has made a call and given an opportunity for us to participate together in his sovereign work of saving souls by the means of prayer. So Paul begins here in his desire for help. He begins with this appeal for personal devotion, personal sacrifice, personal persistence in prayer. Now, I doubt if any of us would honestly stand and deny that connection. In fact, it was J.I. Packer who famously said that everybody is a Calvinist on their knees. Everybody prays for God to work in the lives of unbelievers, acknowledging that he has sovereign will over that. People may question whether God is sovereign in their theology and yet virtually every believer prays for God somehow in some sense to have sway over people's hearts. So people believe in a sovereign God when they're on their knees. They may believe in the power of prayer no matter what their theological camp, but practically speaking, well, that's another matter. Because practically, while we say one thing or another in our prayer and practically while we acknowledge the usefulness of prayer and practically while we may on occasion pray for God to work. Unfortunately, in the daily realities of our life, those prayers have a tendency to decline and fade. You might be sitting here today saying, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in that camp. I love, I, I love the sovereignty of God. I rejoice in that, that sovereign grace. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He is the one who makes it all happen. I believe all those things. Where's your prayer life? How much time have you spent asking God to work in the life of lost loved ones? Jesus addressed this tendency. He knew the reality in in our lives. Similar to Paul, he commanded numerous times for us not to lose heart in prayer because he knows that we do. Over in uh, Luke chapter 11, the disciples, well, we're told in Luke 11, 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. I mean, you ever thought about that? Jesus was praying. 
I mean, this is, this is God, right? This is a guy who had no problems believing that God was going to fulfill his plan. He knew where the world was going and how it all ended up. He understood the sovereignty of God. And yet we read over and over again, especially in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was praying. He went out in an isolated place, Luke 4, and prayed as he often did. Jesus was praying in a certain place, he says, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray. You get around someone in prayer like that, you want to learn from them. Verse 5, he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within, excuse me, and will he answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not uh, get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Unfortunately, I would say that's probably the reality of my life. And yet because of his imprudence, uh, excuse me, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but that's true, right? Um, my kids might come to me in the middle of the night and say, Dad, Dad, and I give that little pretend sleep. And then they keep saying, Dad, Dad. Or I, actually, they say, Mom, Mom. I'm actually, I get to pretend like I'm sleeping all the time. Uh, it's her who gives the little pretend, and then she has to wake up with a persistence. Jesus says in verse 9, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened to them. And what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? You know what he's saying? God wants to give the Holy Spirit. God wants people to be saved. This is God's desire. And so if you go and you ask God for what He desires, do you think He's going to not give it? You go over to Luke 18. This is what Jesus says. He told him a parable to the effect that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And while he refused... Uh, excuse me, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual, continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? He will, uh, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus gave these 
kind of warnings. He gave these kinds of parables because he knew the weakness of our flesh. We believe, we say we believe that God is sovereign over all things. And yet when it comes to our prayer life, we speak a different language. The warnings that are given here, the warnings in Paul, do not lose heart, persist. All of those things imply a struggle. But you might ask, a struggle against what? What are we struggling against? Well, you could say against doubt, but I think that in a real practical way, the real struggle is against time. Because we don't always get what we want immediately. In all these issues, really, it's an issue of time. It's an issue of persistence that Jesus is highlighting. We begin praying with good theology, and somewhere along the way, we develop bad theology. We begin praying, believing in the sovereignty of God, and somewhere along the way, we begin to doubt it. We act differently towards God, as if perhaps we've overestimated His power, or there's no use in prayer. Some of you who are here have prayed for lost loved ones, lost parents, lost brothers, lost sisters, lost sons, lost daughters, lost friends, and lost neighbors. But perhaps somewhere along the way, you have lost your persistence in praying for them. Beginning to doubt whether or not this is really something God even wants to do or could do. And the struggle, the danger is time. There's a battle from when you begin to ask to when God answers that prayer. And that's the time when we have to find persistence. That's the time when we have to find devotion. That's the time when we have to endure. In fact, back over in Colossians chapter 4, that's really what this word is saying, that we have to endure in this kind of prayer. Devote yourselves to it is really a word that in many other places is translated as endure. We have to endure the weight. We have to endure the doubts. We have to endure the impatience. And so the question really is this, how can I do that? I mean, the practical realities of life, how can I develop that kind of devotion? How can I develop that kind of endurance? How can I persist? How can I sustain myself in devoted prayer? Well, Paul adds here in Colossians 4, two words that I believe give us some direction in how to persist. He tells us to continue steadfastly in prayer, first of all, being watchful in it, and secondly, with thanksgiving. And both of these things are very important. If you're going to win the battle of devotion, if you're going to win the battle of persistence, if you're going to participate in God's work and experience the joys of seeing your prayers answered in evangelism or whatever it might be, if you're going to win the battle from the time you begin praying to the time that God answers, you're going to have to understand these two principles. Being watchful, or as the New American Standard says, keep alert, or KJV just simply says, watch. 
Gregoruo is the word. It literally means to be awake. Not that you have to hold all night prayer vigils or Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Paul's not necessarily concerned with whether or not you fall asleep in prayer. Sometimes you do that. When you're laboring long in prayer at night, you literally fall asleep sometimes. Hopefully, if you're praying diligently, that has been your experience. But Paul's not speaking about this physically. He's urging us to be awake or aware spiritually, to be conscious of the evil that subtly attacks our spiritual lives and subtly attacks maybe even our churches and subtly attacks the gospel. It's not a call to avoid necessarily physical sleep, but it is a call to resist falling asleep spiritually, becoming lethargic in the face of the darkness of this world. This is what Jesus, over in Luke 21, if you want to look back over at another passage in Luke 21, Jesus Again, speaking to his disciples about the need for prayer, he calls for alertness in the face of the darkness of the world. He says in verse 34, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. It isn't that, it isn't that you don't necessarily believe in prayer But it's that somewhere along the way, this is what happens to your prayer life. The cares, the busyness of life divert you and make you begin to think, I have no time for prayer. Or, although you wouldn't articulate it this way, I can't waste my time in prayer. We begin to think about it as a waste. There's so many other important things to do. Over in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5, Paul gives us very similar instruction when he speaks about the spiritually sedating influences of the world. Ephesians 5 and in verse 8, Paul says this, At one time you were darkness, But now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of those things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible and uh, for, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, "Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you." Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here's Paul saying, look, you're either exposing or being exposed. You are either a light exposing other people or you are being exposed. You are either exposing or you are taking part in. You're either being demonstrated that you 
because of the lack of these kinds of fruits in your life, because of the ongoing strife and because the ongoing depression and because the ongoing grief and the ongoing shame and the ongoing whatever, you're either being exposed as one who is walking down the pathway of a fool or you are exposing those things. And Paul's warning in this is do not take part in all of that stuff. Do not get sucked into it. Things which are done in secret aren't even worthy of being spoken about or joked about or whatever it might be as he says earlier in Ephesians 5. And you can see here the parallels with Colossians 4 as Paul begins to turn the corner and say that you need to be spiritually awake. You need to be spiritually alert. Walk in wisdom. Make the most of your time. Constantly examining yourself. Seeing whether or not you are being exposed or whether or not you are exposing. Constantly growing in your understanding of what the Lord's will is is evaluating your spiritual life to see if you have the slumbering effects of darkness already creeping in. It's very slow, it's very subtle. You can keep up your religious appearance for a long time when in reality you have already begun to live by the darkness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says similar things. 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 5, Paul says, You are all children of light, children of the day, and we're not of the night or of the darkness, and so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here we're sons of light versus sons of darkness here. We're not to let ourselves be asleep. We are to be those who are, as Paul says here, alert or gregoreo, as we already saw, We're not to be drunk, which is a metaphor for the sedating influence of sin, but we are to be sober and putting on our spiritual armor, which is all related to the truth that we know. And of course, spiritual armor, if you are a good Bible student, takes you in your mind to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, where Paul is talking about the armor of God, where We see a similar connection with the battle of the sinful influences of the world and the call to be awake. And this is what Paul says in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel can't help but see the connections in so many of these passages so much here much of what is behind the spiritual lethargy in prayer is simply a lack of self-examination simply a simply a lack of of 
looking at our own spiritual sleep. This alertness then requires a lot of this self-examination and the key is asking yourself, are you seeing the ill effects of this kind of worldly thinking already in your life? Are you seeing the ill effects in your prayer life? Because you're now taking a part of the world rather than praying for them. I mean, it just makes sense. You're not going to be so moved to pray for people who are trapped in the darkness if you're right there with them. The standards of the world, the worries of the world begin to lull you to sleep. They're so deceptive, so subtle. And so we have to be constantly confessing, constantly examining, constantly noticing where we are drawn into the foolishness of this world, taken in by our culture. Back over to Colossians chapter 4. Paul also mentions a second thing that's necessary for this kind of devoted prayer. Not only watchfulness over your life, but thankfulness. It's the second element that he mentions here. Being steadfast, uh, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is another key. You have to develop thanksgiving in your prayer. Uh, This is what Paul did. I mean, you can look back even at the beginning of the book of Colossians. In Colossians 1.3, we always thank God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. You can go back to Philippians Chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making mention of you with joy. You can go back to Ephesians, back in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. He says this, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all of my prayers. Or you can go forward. Into the book of Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly making mention of you in our prayers. Or 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. I won't belabor reading the rest of Paul's prayers. You get the point. This is a man whose prayer was saturated with thanksgiving. Because Paul understood its importance. He understood, listen to this very carefully. He understood that thanksgiving is the rod that stokes the embers of your prayer life. It is the rod that stokes the embers of your prayer life. That is to say, if you aren't spending time rehearsing all of the ways that God has already answered your prayers, you're not likely to turn around and ask Him for other things. But if in your prayer life you are consumed 
by saying to God all the time, God, thank you. You heard my prayer. You did this work. I see the movement of your hand. If you're in your mind constantly doing that, then it's going to spur you on to the kind of active prayer that is necessary for you to participate in God's work of salvation. And so Paul prayed all the time with thanksgiving. When he prayed that God would work in someone's life, he began by thanking God for what he's already done in their life in answer to prayer. And some of you gave up prayer a long time ago. You know why? Because you gave up thanksgiving. Because you weren't taking time contemplating on the abounding goodness of God in your life. To continually thank God is to continually remind yourself that He does hear and He does respond. To continually thank God is to continually remind yourself that He does hear and He does respond. And that stokes your prayer. So we have to persevere in prayer when we feel like it's the least productive thing that we might do when we are when we are tempted to be distorted in that view we're not to be lured back into the attractions of this world we are to be alert never are we to be weakened in our faith by forgetfulness but we are to fill our life with thankfulness and then in Colossians 4:3 Paul says praying at the same time for us as well, at the same time, meaning that while you're doing the other praying, what other praying? Well, the self-examination to begin with. While you're examining yourself, you know, confessing your worldliness and how you've been drawn into the effects of the world, and while you're giving thanks for everything God is already doing, while you're doing all those things, would you also make mention of us? Paul saying, would you also pray for us? Why? In verse 3, that God may open up for us a door for the word. So see here, see here, now he's bringing prayer and evangelism together. That God would open us a door. By the way, Paul's not sitting around thinking of some ideal circumstance when he says that. You know, we say that. I I might talk to someone when people come to join our church and I've been in those membership interviews and I'll ask them, you know, one of our expectations that you're committing to, if you're committing to be a member of this church, is that you will share your faith. When is the last time you shared your faith? And um, on more than one occasion... People have responded by saying, well, I can't remember, but I'm just praying that God would open a door. And I never asked for clarification on that. I mean, I know that's sometimes a tough thing, you know, being in a membership interview with a pastor. I mean, you're thinking, how do I draw that card? Um, I don't want to really be heavy on them in that situation, but I am curious sometimes to ask, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that I'm waiting on my coworker to stand up from his desk and come over to me and say, hey, by the way, how can I be a Christian? Is that your idea of an open door? Because if it is, 
I can understand why you can't remember the last time you shared your faith. That's not what Paul had in mind. That's not what he had in mind when he said he wanted an open door. He wasn't asking God to do what he was unwilling to do, which is to take initiative to seek out and create relationships where he could share the gospel. That wouldn't be the same Paul that you see in other parts of Scripture. He wasn't that kind of a passive person. Over in Colossians 1, in verse 28, this is what he says, we proclaim him, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. And for this, I toil and struggle with all his energy powerfully working within me. This is a man who spoke to everyone. Uh, He was in everyone's life that he could be. Or over in 1 Corinthians 9.22, he says, I make myself all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Paul did everything within his power to connect with the people around him. So when he's praying for an open door, what exactly is he talking about? Well, Look with me over at Revelation for just a moment because I think it gives us maybe a helpful um, summary of this concept. Revelation chapter 3 in verse 8, excuse me, in verse 7, the angel of the Lord, in, uh, to the, the angel of the, of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts, no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and you've kept my word, and have not denied my name. In verse 9, he tells us who are the people who would shut the door. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I'll make them come down and bow before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. They are the open enemies of the gospel and the open door is specifically any attempt that they would put to place barriers in the way of the proclamation of the gospel. Man-made restrictions on the preaching of the gospel. And so I think this open door that John's talking about or that the Lord's talking about through John, he's saying, I'm going to open a door, no one can shut it. When I shut the door, no one can open it. What he's talking about here are the man-made restrictions that people would want to put on on the proclamation of Christ. And this is really what Paul's talking about. He's not sitting around waiting and praying for some ideal circumstance or some other person to initiate with him some spiritual conversation. Paul boldly pursued everyone that the Lord brought into his path because he realized that these were all potentially people God may want to work in. But he also understood that in certain circumstances, certain people so opposed the gospel that they would intentionally set up barriers to silence the witness of the truth 
in the lives of others, whether it be in your home or whether it be in your place of work or whether it be in your school or whether it be in your country. Look what he says over in 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in verse 8, Paul says this. Speaking about how he wants to come and visit them, spend time with them, he says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Paul knew that there was an opportunity and the opportunity was right now. He knew that because he knew there were many adversaries who were trying to close the door. And so he wanted to take opportunity for the open door so that he could preach the gospel as he ought. And I really believe that if Paul were sitting with us today, his perspective on your life and on my life is that the doors are wide open. Why aren't you taking advantage of them? No one has forbidden you from speaking the gospel. No one has forbidden you from preaching the truth. There may be some restrictions in your school or your work or whatever, but think of all the doors that are open all around you. Paul even says this over in Ephesians chapter 6 once again. Ephesians 6 verse 19, we just read from this. Paul says uh, that he wants them to pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And Paul's saying, look, I just want you to pray for me that an opportunity to proclaim the mystery of the gospel will be there because even though I'm in chains, I'm still looking for that. That I can make known the gospel. Pray for me. Second Thessalonians chapter three. Second Thessalonians chapter three. Paul says in verse one, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. There appears to be an open door here, but Paul wants the word to run quickly because he understands it may not always be there. So he wants to take advantage of every opportunity and that the word of God would be glorified as it goes. So interesting, he never never asked in any of these prayers for a certain number of converts Never asks for any numbers. Never asks for any of those things. He just simply asks that the word of God would be glorified. And that he would be delivered from perverse and evil men who would want to prevent him from preaching. He just wanted the Lord to keep the doors open. So back over in Colossians, when Paul says that he wants to pray, them to pray for an open door, he is writing this from prison. And he wants them to pray that the shackles would be taken off of his feet and his hands or whatever it might be so that he could go out so he wouldn't be silenced, 
so that the restrictions would no longer be there so he can go back to doing what he knows the Lord has called him to do. And he wants them to participate in that. He wants them to ask a sovereign God to do that. He's asking them and he's asking you to make yourself an instrument to offer up prayers through which God would work in the proclamation of the truth. He works sovereignly, but he uses you. You know, one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 1.11, where Paul says to the Corinthians, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. You know what he's saying? He's saying that we're here and we're trying to proclaim the gospel and I want you to pray so that you can participate so that when the gospel prevails and blessing comes from it, I don't get to share, I mean, I don't get to hoard all the joy. Many people are able to rejoice together with this. That means that when you go to bed at night, when you get up in the morning, when you're on your lunch hour or whatever it might be, and you bow your head and you're praying for Chris Brackett and Nina Brackett, or you're praying for Raymond and Edith Choi, and you're praying for Jim and Carolyn Dowdy, or you're praying for Carlos Montoya, or whoever it might be that you know is out there laboring in some far distant land, and you ask the Lord, Lord, would you do this in their life today? Would you give them encouragement so they ought to speak, they speak how they ought to speak? Would you keep open the doors so that no one puts a barrier in their way? Would you allow the word to run forth swiftly? When you say all those things, you don't know exactly how God's using that, but you trust that he is because when you go and ask him for a loaf of bread, he doesn't give you a servant, a serpent, excuse me. He doesn't give you a stone. Because you're asking for the very things that he wants. And you have the joy, the blessing of being used as his instrument. Why? Because God's chosen to work through prayer. In his infinite wisdom, somehow, some way, he decided that one of the things he was going to use in bringing his elect to himself was going to be the prayers of his saints. So that billionaire, he comes along and he hands you a million dollar check. He gives you the privilege and the joy of being the one who takes it and delivers it and has the joy of all the reaction and, and even the promise of reward. Why would you not do that? Why would you not do that? Unless perhaps you thought he didn't have it in the bank. But woe to you. Woe to me. If we begin to think such blasphemous thoughts of God. Well, there's a second way we participate in God's sovereign work. In fact, there's three more. And um, we'll have to get to them next week. Let's stand together. And we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, what a joy it is for us to sit here and contemplate your grace, your mercy, 
to know that you are sovereign over all things and yet you have granted us the opportunities to be used by you as your instrument, as your tools in the proclamation of the truth. Lord, I pray that we would speak as we ought, as the doors are open all around us, that we would look for every opportunity to deliver that precious gift of grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would also engage our hearts and minds, that we wouldn't slumber in the darkness, weighed down with the cares of the world any longer, but we would devote ourselves to prayer with thanksgiving, that we would persist in it so that we can be used mightily by you in the bringing in of all those that you call to yourself. Help us, Lord. We need your grace continually in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.